The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Great to be here. Good, Good to see you. Yes. Uh, Father, any prayer requests tonight? Many. Yes. Uh, so many, in fact. Uh, I, uh, I ask continued prayers for Mrs. Marion Shahan, for Mr. Joseph Percher, for Mr. Clifford Cliff Hogan, and uh, of course for Mr. Paul Riley and his family. I'm still praying for Paul's uh, complete recovery. And um, Mrs. Donna King, there are many others too. Actually, I commend them all to the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, you know, and ask her. I commend it to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart that she will enclose them there. And hold them there um, because she has a true mother's heart and she never forgets anyone so uh, I ask all to pray for those who uh, not only I but all of our priests have recommended to the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, please keep them all all in your prayers okay. Okay. Well, thank you there are many other we just had a dear lady pass away um, and uh, I think a relative of yours, right? Grandma. Grandma, <laughs> right. So uh, please keep her, your souls in your prayers. What, 90 years old, married I'm 90 years more old. than 70 years, right? Yes, Father. Right. So uh, following her husband, Joseph. Okay. So, okay. so please pray for both of them. Yes, I, I ask your prayers for them. Yeah. And uh, there's so many, commission, uh, so many prayers committed, so many intentions committed to our prayers as priests um, that we... We turn to you and ask you to remember all of these dear souls in your prayers. Very good. Thank you, Father. Um, well, Father, we have a couple uh, topics tonight, but before we got into some of those, I wanted to uh, just, just quickly uh, mention, remind viewers about our, our website, uh, mm -hmm. wcbohio.com. Um, we have so much great content that, that goes on there mm -hmm. every day. Um, we're, we're posting, uploading new things to the website. Um, there's a lot of exciting things, I think, ha happening there. Um, so I just would encourage all of our, our viewers to visit there. We um, have been posting a lot of your, uh, a lot of your writings, Father, just, just brief, brief writings, whether on um, current events, uh, even in, in the world or in the church, um, or even just, just a lot of, of spiritual, short little spiritual writings that um, you've inserted in the bulletins uh, here over the years. So we've been posting a lot of those on the website, um, but also uh, on the on the website viewers can find the link to our Etsy shop, where we have a lot of uh, right. great Catholic products on there. Very popular with Catholics believe mug, uh, but we also have a lot of handmade rosaries on there from a right. very uh, faithful. The rosaries are hand delivered to me. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, by the rosary makers, and I'm constantly impressed by how both sturdy they are and how elegant they are yeah I, and it's not easy that you find elegance and and sturdiness yeah. uh often combined but they they really have found a way to artfully combine them yeah. so they're the, some of the strongest rosaries i've ever seen and uh among the most beautiful as well i, I think a number of people have already uh bought some of the rosaries mm -hmm. uh, purchased them from our etsy shop you yes, said yeah. um and i just uh, actually uh, brought, I think, 15 more <laughs> rosaries, yeah. So they're quite prolific. But uh, they're really beautiful. I do recommend people take a look. They'd make excellent gifts. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, Tom, I, I'm, I'm quite amazed by the extensive, the extensiveness of the uh, of the website. Really, I mean, you've done a great job, but uh, I know you're not you're not the one doing all that. <laughs> The, uh, the hands-on work, right? We have some really gifted people who are doing that right now. Yes, Father. I'll have to introduce them all sometime. Well, sometime. We'll get a, what can't these believe, Christmas card, actually, with the photographs of those involved, if they're willing. They're so, they're so humble, it's hard to say if they'd be willing. But uh, just so you get to meet those who are behind the scenes, actually making, doing all the good work. Yes. Yes. But even beyond that, Father, we also um, have, I don't know how many of our viewers are aware of this, but we have uh, what I think is a very, very neat uh, little separate YouTube channel that we started uh, called What Catholics Believe Highlights. Mm -hmm. um, we can link to that, and there's just a lot of um, uh, just pieced together clips from various programs over the years highlighting uh, some of the more popular questions, questions mm -hmm. that we get, questions that you've answered. And I think they're they're such a great tool. I mean, lots of them are only. Are three. people tuning into them? Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. There's they're they're really they're very uh, easy to share with, with mm -hmm. friends and families. They're I mean they're only three, four, or five minute long uh, little clips or so. But um, as I say, they they touch on a lot of the more popular um, questions on more topical things. So um, I think rather than sending someone maybe an hour long episode, <laughs> it, mm -hmm. uh, which can be a little bit daunting, and asking them to watch through that. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of the clips we have, as I say, only a few minutes long. I think they're they're great. Materials That's a great kind of idea. Around, yeah. so. uh, I myself just today asked that there be posted on our website the last interview of Archbishop Marcel mm -hmm. Lefebvre, yeah. uh, which I think is a fascinating and very revealing interview by Monsieur Lefebvre. Shows where what his thoughts were, kind of uh, summarizing the work of his life and how he saw the situation in the church. I, I thought it was uh, very enlightening. I would recommend people go, go to that link and, uh, and read that interview. Yeah. It's kind of like the, uh, not exactly the last testament right. of Monsieur Lefebvre, but he gave the interview, uh, as I recall, uh, just two months before he passed away. Yep. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, thank you Father, and thanks to everyone who has been helping with the website. Um, Father, we uh, tonight wanted to uh, talk about um, an objection that was actually raised to uh, to uh, actually one of our highlight videos where uh, mm. we highlighted the um, the case of Pope Honorius, uh, which you you've referenced several times. But uh, in uh, this particular video, which which we can link to, Father, you um, gave just a, a brief account of the uh, the history of, of uh, Pope Honorius and. Uh, the uh, case against him, and you you uh, use this. I, I think Father is uh, just to um, maybe an illustration of the the fact that uh, a true Catholic Pope can in fact error. Uh, you I think um, use the phrase that Catholic tradition has more authority than the Pope. Um, and we actually had a viewer uh, somewhat uh, object to that, and he he sent in an email that I'll uh, read here, Father, and ask for your uh, response to this. Uh, he says, Father, in that video on Pope Honorius, you stated that the Church has acknowledged that popes can, quote, actually betray the Church and the faithful, end quote, uh, such that faithful Catholics must sometimes, quote, again, you, Father, denounce him and themselves give the clarion call to the true faith, end quote. So, Father, he asks, how do you prove that statement and reconcile it with the teaching of the First Vatican Council, which defined that the see of Peter always remains unimpaired by any error, according to the divine promise of our Lord and Savior made to the chief of his disciples. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail thee not, uh, fail not, rather. And um, like another quote from Vatican I, he says, This gift of truth and a never-failing faith was divinely conferred upon Peter and his successors in this chair. So, Father, how do you um, reconcile these quotes from Vatican I uh, about the infallibility of uh, popes with uh, your contention that uh, Pope Honorius himself uh, failed, erred, even betrayed Catholics. Is there any kind of contradiction there? No, there is none. Uh, there can't be. Uh, and what was decreed at Vatican I has to be understood in the context of Catholic tradition. I mean, the whole history of the Church. Um, you know, the, the the interpretation to be placed upon any document of the Church uh, is not a matter of your interpretation or mine. It is the, what the Church means by her own words. 
Um, uh, and so when we look back in history, we see the church has made judgments about things and uh, authoritatively made judgments about things that popes have done. And uh, with regard to uh, the example of Honorius, for, uh, which uh, I cited, and I, I cited not, not so much as an example of what's happening today with Francis, uh, because what Francis is doing is uh, quite beyond anything that Honorius did or failed to do. Okay? What Francis is doing is, is unprecedented in the history of the Church. So I wasn't citing Honorius as a parallel example, but I was citing the example of Honorius to show that popes could fail in their responsibilities as popes that popes could uh, fail in such a way that they would betray their responsibility to Christ, to the Church, and to the faithful. And uh, actually, uh, again, you know, we, we have to understand the, the general meaning of um, the words of, of Vatican I in the light of the Church's own tradition, because the Church doesn't predict itself. Now, uh, I, I noticed, by the way, that... that uh, the gentleman who sent the uh, the email uh, to you, objecting to this highlight, and if you're going to make highlights, you have to be ready to take objections, of course, because <laughs> you're pointing fingers at certain things to highlight them. <clears throat> and I, I noticed that one of the authorities, in fact, the only authority that I saw that he he referred to here, was, um, and he wasn't named in the in the information that I received, but I just understood now that the 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 authority that was Prevented, uh, that was presented as an argument for his argument was a certain Cardinal Louis Nazar, uh, I, I would pronounce it Begin, right? Uh, died in 1925, he was appointed by Pope Leo XIII to be the Archbishop of Quebec, and made a cardinal, right? Under St. Pius X. Um, and uh, Cardinal uh, Begin is arguing. Uh, um, against the condemnation of Honorius, he, he says basically that that Honorius was was um, condemned not in the same way that the actual heretics were condemned. You know, we're talking about a heresy, the monothelite heresy, and uh, we're talking about uh, condemnation that took place about the year 630 BC, uh, AD, I beg your pardon, 630 BC. AD. AD, thank you. And uh, I need an app. But anyway, um, and um, the condemnation that followed within about 40 years after the life and death of, uh, of Pope Honorius I. Uh, the Cardinal's argument is that uh, the condemnation of Honorius was not for heresy, but was for simply making a kind of prudential decision not to step up and pronounce the, the truth of the faith. And then to, uh, to require all, all the Catholic people to be silent about, about the heresy. Uh, not to condemn it, not to preach the truth against it, and so on. Okay. Uh, it, it amazes me, actually, as I read the work of this cardinal, uh, what he actually has to say on two, two counts. <clears throat> he says that, um, well, he, he basically minimizes the, the evil of a pope silencing, not only being silent himself in fright before heresy, but silencing the Catholic people and the clergy about preaching the truth of the faith. This Cardinal uh, Beijing, if that's how his name is pronounced, B-E-G-I-N, um, seems to minimize the gravity of that to the point where he actually says that in his estimation, uh, Pope Honorius had no guilt, no personal guilt for what he did. And uh, therefore, of course, this writer who's following the, the writing of this Cardinal uh, says that I'm wrong in using his in him an example of a pope who could betray Christ, the Church, and the faithful. 
Um, it also amazes me the, that um, Pope Leo II, Saint Leo II, who condemned uh, Honorius, was misquoted so, I would say, egregiously, misquoted so egregiously in, again, the writing of this, this uh, cardinal. Because uh, he, uh, he quotes, and I would say misquotes, um, uh, St. Leo II in condemning Honorius by saying this, okay? He says, and this is, a, again, these are supposedly a translation of the words of Pope St. Leo II condemning Honorius, among others. We anathematize the inventors of the new dogma. Theodore, Bishop of Haran, Cyrus of Alexandria, Sergius, Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter, intruders rather than bishops of Constantinople, and also Honorius, who did not strive to maintain the purity of this apostolic church by teaching the tradition of the apostles, but who permitted this church by teaching the tradition of the apostles, I'm sorry, but who permitted this church without stain to be sullied by profane treason. That's interesting why he ends that quote here, that Honorius permitted the church without stain to be sullied by profane treason. And then the bishop goes on, the cardinal goes on to say, this profane treason was nothing other than the heretical treason of Sergius, the inventor of the new heresy of which St. Leo just spoke. That statement is manifestly false. And I say it's manifestly false, first of all, because, <clears throat> because Sergius, the, the patriarch of Constantinople, was not the inventor of the heresy. Uh, he was enlisted, included in a list of those who were purveyors of the heresy. He did not invent the heresy. And certainly this cardinal must have known that Sergius, the patriarch of Constantinople, did not invent, invent the heresy of monothelitism. But, but also he actually, unfortunately, misquotes, and he says that when Pope St. Leo II condemns Honorius, and he uses the expression of pro profane treason, he says, the Cardinal says, that St. Leo II is referring to the treason of Sergius. But actually, the, the, the correct translation of the Church of this very document says very clearly that the treason that was condemned, the treachery was on the part of Honorius, in failing to stand up for the faith. And this is why I said that there are popes who can be guilty of failing in their papal responsibilities to defend the faith to the point of betraying Christ, betraying the church, and betraying the faithful. And the actual citation from the writings of Pope Leo II say this, and in like manner we anathematize the inventors of the new error, that is, Theodore, Bishop of Haran, for those who want to look him up, that's Theodore of Suestia, Sergius, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter, betrayers rather than leaders of the Church of Constantinople, and also Honorius, who did not attempt to sanctify this apostolic church with the teaching of apostolic tradition, but by profane treachery, permitted its purity to be polluted. So the actual words of Pope St. Leo II say that by permitting the purity of the faith to be polluted, he was guilty of profane treachery. That is Honorius, not Sergius, as our cardinal would have it. And so uh, I'm actually just referring to the the words of Pope St. Leo II himself in the condemnation of Honorius and the heretics uh, who favored and promoted monothelitism. Uh, if one has any background in, in this uh, matter of monothelitism 
and has any more extensive background than just reading um, you know, a handful of things about it, one realizes that the church considered what Honorius did to be general, gen genuine treason against the church, truly a profane treachery. And uh, it amazes me also that this cardinal is writing, and he, he goes on to say, by the way, that in the church, the consequences of what Honorius did uh, were so severe. And yet he himself seems to just discount them as though, well, Honorius really wasn't, in his estimation, even guilty of anything, uh, except for maybe an imprudence, an act of imprudence. I mean, this is what this cardinal writes. This anathema, the anathema of, of Honorius, brought against the deceased Honorius, led to his name being effaced from the holy diptychs, his writings being destroyed, the prevention of his being named in the church, and the blackening of his memory. He even goes on to say this severe line of conduct on the part of the Sixth Ecumenical Council yielded a happy result. It inspired the faithful with a great horror of the new heresy and showed them how much the church took it to heart to annihilate it. Now, those words of the cardinal, I would think, would have impressed himself the cardinal, enough to realize this is how seriously the church took this failure of Honorius, and um, that th he seems to understand why the church took it so seriously, to impress upon the church the, the horror for the heresy, but to realize the church's uh, is seriousness in protecting the, the integrity of the faith. And then the same cardinal ends by saying, well, I don't think... Honorius, what he, Honorius did was that a lot bad. And he says out, outright, he says, in my opinion, he says, as for the personal culpability of this pontiff, Honorius, I believe there was absolutely none. That's what he says. After having said all of that, this, this astounds me. Um, but, you know, in a sense I can understand it because the, the enemies of the church have been trying to use the case of Honorius to show that a true pope can be a heretic and, uh, and remain a pope, that, that popes can be heretics, and they can be heretical teachers of faith. And they're trying to make the case that even the Catholic Church acknowledges that in the case of Honorius. Now, one thing I do give uh, the cardinal here is that... Uh, uh, he does explain that there's a distinction between the condemnation of, of um, uh, Theodore Bobsvestia, Pyrrhus, and others who are partisans of the heresy. They even, they even group Sergius. It's not clear that Sergius ever believed in monothelitism. Sergius was the patriarch of Constantinople who actually produced this heterodox, um, ambiguous creed for everyone to sign. And it was so ambiguous, and it stated the faith so unclearly that those who had the Catholic faith could sign it, and those who were heretics could sign it, and we'd all be one big happy family. That's what Sergius was all about. Uh, the Church condemned that. Again, it's kind of ironic that the Cardinal here <clears throat> is saying... Actually, we can understand why Honorius took this course of action because he wanted all of us to be united, you know, in the church. And, but that's precisely why Sergius was condemned later for taking that course of action that is simply not allowable uh, for any Catholic to do, to be heterodox about his faith, let alone a pope. So, I, I mean, the writing of this... Um, I think is very faulty, and I'm, I'm very uh, sad about it because it leads to wrong conclusions. Um, but the fact is that Honorius was not condemned for actually being a partisan of monothelitism, <clears throat> but he was condemned for not only failure to condemn the heresy, he was condemned also for failure to preach the truth of the faith when it was questioned, and he was condemned 
for silencing those who would speak up for the faith, silencing the clergy, silencing the faithful, who would speak up for the true Catholic faith. He told them all they must not speak about this. And, uh, of course, as you know, the emperor backed that up by civil penalties of, um, you know, imprisonment, confiscation of goods, even death in certain cases. But there were bishops who spoke out against the heresy despite the prohibition of the Pope Honorius I and despite the prohibition of the empire. They risked their lives in some cases to speak out against the heresy. And the church canonized them and condemned Honorius for trying to silence them. It's a fact. The men who disobeyed and refused to obey Honorius were, were, were uh, canonized by the church as saints. St. Sophronius, St. Maximus the Confessor. That is a fact. <clears throat> so the church did, in fact, condemn what Honorius did. And uh, St. Leo did say it was by profane treachery that Honorius had failed to stand up for the faith. And anything less than that is complete falsehood. Um, to say that Honorius believed the heresy, that is a stretch. That has not been proven. There are those who've tried to make that case. Uh, I don't know that they have effectively done so. I guess our, the writer of our email would say, well, it was impossible because he was the Pope, so he couldn't be a heretic. I guess. Now, uh, tell me, I think behind all of this, actually, is um, it, the, the, the writer of the, of the email could go the, one of two ways in this, okay? And there are two opposite ways. He could be saying, okay, I'm concerned about this misapplication and misinterpretation uh, because if we try to look at the current situation of the church with what Francis is doing, then we have to <clears throat> accept the fact that St. Francis is a pope, he cannot be a heretic. And no matter what else we say about him, we, must, we cannot say that he's betraying the faith. We cannot say he's betraying our Lord. We cannot say he's betraying the church. Uh, we simply can't say that because it's totally out of the question. Because according to this writer's interpretation of Vatican I, that would be impossible. A pope cannot do that. Or the writer can be saying, well, it's clear that Francis is, in fact, betraying the church, betraying Christ, betraying the faithful. And therefore, he cannot possibly be a pope. Do you happen to know where he's coming from on this? I think it's the latter opinion, Father. I think that expresses it pretty well. You think his, his point is that uh, he thinks I'm trying to, to make it uh, possible for Francis to be the pope and do all these things. And his argument is, well, no, you cannot uh, say that Honorius did these things because he was a true pope and uh, try to apply that to Francis. And so Francis could do all these things and be a true pope. You think that's his argument? I think so, Father. Okay. Well, um, I, I, I might very, very well agree with the point because my, that wasn't my point with Honorius. My point with Honorius was to basically contrast what Honorius did and the round condemnation of the church against him for what he did in simply failing in his responsibility, as opposed to Francis, who was overtly attacking the faith, attacking our Lord by blasphemy, attacking the church by trying to replace it with his own citadel church. I mean, what Francis is doing is of a totally different order than anything that even the worst of popes have ever did, done, or thought of doing, right? including Honorius. So um, I, I just don't think we could even consider them to be uh, in any way similar. Uh, Francis is beyond the pale. It is, it, what he is doing is unprecedented. But I would, uh, there, there are two points I would, I would like to make about this, and I will try to be uncharacteristically brief in making these points. First of all, <clears throat> When someone has a God-given responsibility that he has freely taken upon himself, such as the papacy, and his primary obligation is to protect the faith, to preach the truth and to condemn error, 
then if he fails to do so, he's responsible for the crime. He actually partakes of the crime. If you have somebody who signs on as a night watchman, no more than that. And he is there to guard the goods, to guard the business. Uh, he's there to make sure that gates are locked and that thieves do not have access. And he not only, uh, let's say, fails to secure the gates, but he, as Honorius did, took the locks off and forbade anyone else to secure the faith. His responsibility is that is on a par with that of the thieves themselves, because he had a a a, a gun, he had a profound responsibility to prevent that theft, and the church says that he can be held responsible for making restitution for the loss. That's how serious his responsibility is. The church considers that to be actually cooperation in the crime of another person. That's what Honorius did. Francis is going way beyond that. Okay? And so uh, I may very well agree with him that Francis himself is in fact betraying the faith, betraying Christ, and betraying the church, and I do agree with him in that. And I do agree with him that Francis is doing that, so much so that logically and theologically, it would make it impossible for him to be the vicar of Christ on earth. A title which Francis himself has rejected, right? But I would ask you, if you know the mind of our writer here, would he then, thinking this way, if I accurately represent his thought, would he go so far as to say that he has the magisterial authority to pronounce his position as a doctrine of the faith that all the Catholic people must accept, and that he himself, in a sense, speaks with papal authority in, in stating that his interpretation of the facts of the matter and the principles given to us by the Church are infallible, and everyone must accept it as a matter of faith, his position. Would he say that? I don't think so. I certainly hope not. I certainly hope not. And uh, basically that is what I'm saying, and this is essentially the society, St. Pius V's position, that one can make a very strong theological argument for Francis not having the faith, perhaps even never having the faith, uh, either not being validly elected the Supreme Pontiff, or if he were not uh, retaining the papacy, if he ever had it, because of public denial of the faith and his attack on the faith, even an attempt to destroy the church and to replace it with his own synodal church, which has already been condemned by St. Pius X in uh, Pashendi of 1907. One can make, that, uh, I think, a very clear-cut, ironclad argument for that. But that's all it is, a logical, theological argument. And that is not the same as having magisterial authority to declare this a matter of faith so that everyone in his conscience has to accept it as a truth because, let's say, I'm convinced of it or because the writer is convinced of it. So I think when you come right down to it, I, I tend to think that if our writer would sit down and we could have a discussion about this, we'd probably agree on the essential things, right? We might disagree on his interpretation of Vatican I, right? which I think is his interpretation of Vatican I. Right? But I think it also contradicts um, the voice of Pope St. Leo II you know, in speaking very clearly about the profane treachery of an actual Pope Honorius I. Uh, but I think in the essential things with regard to Francis today, I think we would agree. Uh, I, don't, I think we'd agree all the way through. Yeah. So, uh, again, I, I don't understand why uh, he's actually making an issue of it unless 
he doesn't understand what my position is. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think it seems to me that he's uh, basically trying to make what I'm saying of Pope Honorius I and the Church's judgment of him somehow in contradiction with Pastor Eternus of Vatican I. Mm -hmm. But again, I, I think uh, his interpretation of both these matters, I think his interpretation of Pastor Eternus of Vatican I and his interpretation of the Church's judgment of Honorius, I think they're both faulty. Mm -hmm. Father, what, what would you say, um, as I say, you've used this, this phrase before, saying that Catholic tradition has more authority uh, than, than, the, than a pope, even all of the popes combined, mm -hmm. I, I think you've said. But um, what would you say if, um, if our writer said that that was essentially a, a straw man argument because of, of Vatican I and, and papal infallibility, that... Uh, the two cannot be at odds ever, so um, it almost makes makes that a strong main argument. And thereby, um, you know, when you when you reference this this case of of Honorius, it's um, could be a, a very weak argument, and a much more effective argument would simply be to say that because in these uh, post-Vatican II popes we see their attacks on on the faith, thereby uh, it just makes it cut and dry that they cannot possibly be popes. Um, so what, what would you say about that uh, Catholic tradition has more authority than the, than the Pope? So if someone said that that was a straw man argument, how would you respond I think to that? I'd say it's nonsense. i say it's complete nonsense. Because it's true. Catholic tradition is one of the, one of the uh, foundation. They're, 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 they're basically two fonts of revelation, what the Church calls them. The Church herself calls them. The fonts of revelation are sacred scripture and sacred tradition. No pope is a font, you know, is, is a foundation of the church. That's impossible. Catholic tradition goes far beyond any particular, any particular pope, and the very papacy comes down to us through Catholic tradition, right? Yeah. I mean... One might say, no, no, it's in the scriptures. I mean, but the scriptures themselves come to us from Catholic tradition. The preaching of the apostles preceded them. The, the, the New Testament gospels were written from the preaching of the apostles, which preceded the writing of the gospels. The gospels are the written down uh, preaching of the apostles. And so, again, the foundation has to be in sacred tradition, which is the work of the Holy Ghost. Catholic tradition has the authority of the Holy Ghost behind it. Right? Our Lord himself said, it is expedient to, for you that I go, because if I do not go, the Holy Ghost will not come to you, the paraclete will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Our Lord sent him here. And what did he send him for? Well, to condemn the world, to convict the world of a judgment, justice, right? To con convict the world of its refusal to believe. But then uh, to confirm the faithful in their faith and to bring to mind all things whatsoever I have said to you. That's what our Lord said the Holy Ghost would do for the apostles. <clears throat> that he would keep them on track of our Lord's own teaching, right? This is the work of the Holy Ghost in the church. This is sacred tradition. I don't understand how anybody understands what Catholic tradition is cannot see that all the popes are bound by that and have to live their Catholic lives and exercise their papacy within the, the boundaries of Catholic tradition. And I think, well, if he says, if he, again, I mean, if he wants to make the argument, which I've already said, I don't agree with, which I think I said is, is wrong, I've already said that, that he says a pope cannot uh, violate Catholic tradition by definition, well, I'm saying, if he, you know, he wants to quibble about the, the meaning of the word treason or treachery or betrayal, I'm saying that Honorius failed to fulfill his responsibility. Okay, the Church considered that already profane treachery. Yeah, that's what the, that's what the, the expression means. That's what it says, <clears throat> and so he's trying to say that no pope can go contrary to Catholic tradition and be the pope. Mm -hmm. And 
in that sense, we might say, okay, if a pope were to defy uh, a sacred tradition, then, you know, maybe he would lose the papacy by the very fact that he did that. I mean, it sounds to me that his argument is, well, Francis was once the pope, but then he betrayed Catholic tradition and lost the papacy. Is that what he's saying? I don't know what he's saying. Um, but evidently, he's saying that Vatican I is teaching that a pope cannot betray Catholic tradition and be the pope. So since Francis and, and company have betrayed Catholic tradition, they could not be popes. Well, it, it seems that he's at least implying that they were popes until they betrayed Catholic tradition. And then that's when they lost the papacy, one after another. And again, I mean, uh, you know, the question is, who is to judge that? Is right. he to judge that? Uh, you know, yeah. but on top of that, I mean, there, there are popes who have acted contrary to Catholic tradition. Uh, and Honorius is one who acted, he acted contrary to Catholic tradition. And this writer might say, well, he just acted that way, according to this cardinal, it was imprudent, but he didn't have any real personal responsibility for failing to do that, although the church has com roundly condemned him for doing it, and even excommunicated him for doing it. <laughs> um, I, th I think it takes a certain amount of nerve <laughs> to go contrary to that, judgment of the church. Wow. But, um, you know, the fact that Honorius actually silenced the clergy and tried to, and the faithful, or tried to silence them all in the face of heresy. Now, in my book, that is, and I think in the church's book as well, uh, a betrayal of, of Christ, the church, and the faithful. Betrayal of the faith, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I, I would have to consider that contrary to Catholic tradition, what he did there. Father. And that is why the church actually does name him in the list of those who were the heretics because his action favored their heresy. Mm -hmm. And the church considered that to be very, very grave. Mm -hmm. Father, if, if we were to uh, admit the principle that, a, that a, even a, a true Catholic pope can, uh, in fact, betray Catholic tradition, doesn't, could that not create some kind of uh, a, a very serious practical problem where um, essentially Catholics would have to uh, on some level, at least, judge every action of a pope to see if it was in line with Catholic tradition. Uh, we wouldn't have the guarantee that the the pope would be following Catholic tradition all the time, so therefore every one of his actions we would have to subject that to some kind of judgment to say, okay, is this particular uh, action within the bounds of, of Catholic tradition? Is there any kind of practical problem there with that? There is a practical problem with that, yeah. And, I mean, in a sense, you might say that Luther did that, saying that oh, the Pope deviated from, you know, the Christian practice or whatever. And so, yes, it can be a problem. Uh, when, it's, when it's basically out of control, when it's used by a scoundrel or a nefarious person or a heretic, yeah, it can, that can be a problem. So then but the problem uh, still arises, you know, that, um, you see, there has to be a way of um, determining when the faith is being upheld and when, when it is being contradicted, right? And uh, there was a, a Pope, John XXII, you, you know of him. Um, he actually was teaching as a private theologian that the souls of the just are not in heaven. They have to wait until the judgment. So all the saints we're invoking now, they're not there. They're not in heaven. And they won't be until after the general judgment and the, and the resurrection. So, and the resurrection and the general judgment in that order. And there were those who said he was guilty of heresy. Uh, the Franciscans, notably, came after him. Now, it was very clear at that point that what he was teaching was contrary to the faith. The Franciscans went so far as to denounce him for that. Um, he never actually uh, pronounced that as a conviction of faith. He pronounced it as a theological opinion. Okay? It's a different matter. He didn't pronounce it as a matter of doctrine of faith. 
he didn't even pronounce it that he himself personally embraced it as a matter of faith, but merely as a theological opinion. He himself renounced that position and proclaimed the true faith before he died. Okay, he admitted that he was wrong in his theological opinion, and he embraced the matter of faith that the saints are in heaven now, uh, not waiting, awaiting for the resurrection and the general judgment to actually enter heaven. Okay? But I mean, as you go through Catholic history, you do see the Catholic people with the census catholicus, uh, the census fide, you see them going through, and they are very mindful of the necessity of staying the course and maintaining the faith. And um, yes, they actually held the popes accountable for not living up to the faith on their personal lives, but also the Catholic people were very, very, very aware of what was being taught and whether it actually conformed to Catholic tradition. Now, what you're saying, Tom, is, is true, and it is a danger that anyone could stand up and say, well, I don't think this, but this particular pope is saying conforms with Catholic tradition, and so I'm denouncing him as not the pope, but an anti-pope, and so on and so forth. And again, if you took the position merely straight out of the box from our writer, say, well, if a pope contradicts Catholic tradition, he's automatically not the pope. And that opens up the Pandora's box there. That anybody could say, well, I think he contradicts Catholic tradition. So as far as I'm concerned, he's not the Pope. So everybody could question anything at any time, you know. The fact is, though, that those who really have the faith, those who honestly have the faith, um, um, actually will submit to the true Roman Pontiff. They acknowledge that the moral universality of those who actually have the faith and are practicing the faith are correct and they they will know by the grace of god to follow the faith for example in the proclamation of the assumption of our lady in 19, 1950 the immaculate conception in 1854 the catholic people universally accepted that uh there might have been you know those here and there the old catholics for example who questioned these things but again they were they were clearly peripheral, and they were clearly marginally with regard to the faith anyway, okay? This is something that the church has to face going through history. My concern is this, that when you have uh, someone who stands up and saying, well, I interpret Vatican I this way, and I interpret what the church said about Honorius this way, and I come to the judgment that, you know, this is, this is what it means for myself, and I'm making this kind of my dogmatic position, that's, that's where you have the danger of someone doing that. Yeah. I mean, al allow me, if, to, if I may, just to say my own actual thoughts on the matter, um, for what they're worth, okay? There's an enormous amount of confusion today, I understand that. And I don't expect everybody to hear what I say and to automatically agree with what I say. In fact, quite the contrary. I expect people to disagree and argue to the contrary, which is perfectly fine with me because I think that's necessary. I think that's not only necessary, but I think it's desirable because I think we, we need, every one of us needs to be checked because we're not the magisterium. And we have to be checked to reemphasize the fact you're not the magisterium. What I have to say, you know, has no more or less authority than you do, you know, um, certainly no less authority than your opinion in the matter. Um, the point is to back it up with facts from the church's own statements, to tell us what the church says about this and how the church applies her own laws, her own principles, and so on. This is where the argument really has to come from. This is what I wish we all would do as traditional Catholics, is sit down and really have serious discussions about these things. Um, and uh, talk about them with, with, with the gravity and the charity necessary to really go, you know, analyze these issues. I think we could actually make a lot of progress that way if the, those with all their such entrenched views would simply, uh, let's sit down and talk about this. 
I think that all of the solutions that people are proposing to what's happening today are problematic. I mean, you have the, the diehard uh, dogmatic St. Vicantis who say he's not the Pope and you can't even think that he's the Pope. And if you even think that he is the Pope, that you're, you're wrong and you're, you're not even a Catholic or, you know, go away. We never want to hear from you again. Whatever. You're, you're anathema, you're banished, you're excommunicated. Now, you know, I, I say, okay, their, their attitude is that the papacy has basically come to an end. The line of popes has come to an end. And um, I think is a natural consequence. Or they have the idea that Jesus Christ himself will give us another pope and uh, he will make that known and reveal it to all of those people of goodwill who the true pope is. And I think that's very uh, poetic, but it's not of the faith, you know, that our Lord will do that. Um, there are people who want to go on the basis of various prophecies and interpret them in certain ways so that they, uh, you know, serve their purposes and make things come out right in their own mind, what right is right in their own mind. But again, I think this very, can be very self-serving. And there's no foundation for this, except their own personal musings. There are those who say, well, when the true Pope comes along, then the, the, the uh, universality, the moral universality of the Catholic people throughout the world, who still have the faith and still practice the faith, they will recognize him as the true Pope. That will be the, by the principle of convalidation, <clears throat> that those who are truly Catholics recognizing him uh, in a moral universal way, moral, the moral universality of such people recognizing him, that will mean he is the Pope, the very, very fact. And again, I, don't, I, I can't accept that as being the way this is all going to be resolved, because I think that's kind of a deus ex machina kind of situation right now. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, I see the dilemma you know, how do you have someone like Francis, who manifestly does not have the Catholic faith, is, who, who rejects the Catholic faith, who even rejects the very concept of the papacy, of the Catholic faith, and um, is trying to replace the church with his own creation of this Tower of Babel, uh, which he's calling his synodal church. How can you recognize him as the supreme pontiff of the real Roman Catholic Church at the same time that he is the, uh, the head leader and uh, spokesperson and et cetera, et cetera, of this modernist church that Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, has condemned already. How can he be both at the same time? In other words, everywhere you turn here, you seem to have these dilemmas. And I, ex I, I realize that. Um, so um, I think we have to be a little very careful about dogmatizing our own personal interpretation and our own personal, um, uh, what should I say, positions on these things. <clears throat> um, uh, so that, that being said, you know, we have to default, I believe, to the one thing that we know is sure. And what we know with absolute certitude is the traditional Catholic faith is the true faith. It's what the church has always said we have to practice. It's what the saints who we honor practiced from ages and past. Uh, the church herself has repeatedly said in times of confusion, crisis, and so on, breakdowns of communication, hold fast to the traditional faith. Hold fast to what you've received in, in the faith. And uh, so I think that that's, that certitude, our Lord has given us what we need, the compass we need, the chart we need to follow the right course. Hold fast to the traditional faith, the traditional mass, the traditional sacraments, the traditional catechisms, because they're certain we can't go wrong with this. As soon as we abandon those for the sake of following the modernists, namely Francis et al et Ali's, we are going to we are going to be off the track. And we're going to be lost. We're just going to be the church in search, as they called the church after Vatican II, the church in search of itself. Um, no, that's not Catholic. 
Um, so anyway, I mean, I, ha I have a very, very decided opinion on the matter. But I realize it is, as decided as, as it is, it is a, an opinion, right? And it's certainly not fallible. And I'm very interested in hearing the points of view of other people. But I'd like to hear them expressed in such a way that they also realize that their, their, their position, that they're not talking to me as so many popes uh, defining dogmas at me in their interpretation of what Vatican II means, Vatican I means or seems to mean to them, and how to apply it, you know. Um, I think, again, we have to go back to how the Church herself understands her own, her own life, her own statements, her own laws, and how she applies these things in reality. This is Catholic tradition. That's where we have to go. That's where we take our stand. I don't know if that clarified things or made them more confusing, but anyway, there you have it. That's very funny. <laughs> uh, okay, well, Father, anything else in closing before we finish? Tonight? Well, I, I think we had a, a question about uh, space aliens come our way, <laughs> oddly right. enough, right? We did. Because there's a lot of talk about this right now, Yeah. right? And, uh, and I think there's going to be a lot more talk about this right now. I think it's for, uh, greatly a diversionary tactic of those who are doing very bad things on earth, okay, to try to get people's attention off the crimes they're committing. Um, I think it's also a tactic of bad people on earth who are looking to use this um, to seize power and to claim that they can impose all these rules and regulations because we're being invaded by space aliens, right? Uh, I think it's another thing to destabilize people's minds and to destabilize their societies by destabilizing their minds by all this talk about space aliens. Um, the whole concept of space aliens elsewhere in the universe and invading the Earth, um, I believe, is contrary to what we know, the truth of the Gospels, that this imposes so many, so many challenges and problems to what is revealed to us in sacred scripture and in sacred tradition by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Ghost, that I think it is out of the question that there is such a thing. And all of the arguments to the contrary, that there must be space aliens and intelligent life somewhere else in the universe, I think have no weight whatsoever. I think they can be easily answered. All of the arguments about this. Uh, it's all based upon the idea of evolution anyway. The whole idea is that, well, these, these creatures must have evolved there. And I think that's what the evolutionists would like to use to try to prove to us. But the space alien adventure that is coming, and I think it's coming soon, actually got its big impetus from a Satanist, occultist, the man who called himself the wickedest man alive. And a lot of our, our listeners will recognize the name of Aleister Crowley, a man who lived in the early 1900s, who really reveled in the name of the wickedest man alive, with his Temple of Telema, uh, willfulness, uh, do what you will, that's the whole of the law. He was a Satanist, he was an occultist, uh, and a founder of the occult temples, a Freemason, mixed up with the Freemasons, actually that's where he seemed to get his start. And um, he claimed to be channeling a space alien. He was channeling a, a space alien. He even drew his picture, called him Lam, L-A-M. We're talking about the early 1900s now. And if you look at Aleister Crowley's picture of Lam, you see the modern-day space alien. Um, these were demonic beings that he was in touch with. Uh, he was trying at one point to uh, channel his own guardian angel, but in order to channel his own guardian angel, he had to invoke the, the 12 demonic spirits of this and the demonic spirits of that. The man was truly a deranged occultist. Uh, Satanists, and uh, 
I believe that what we're witnessing now, what we're hearing now, forecast in the area of space aliens, is actually just following through on the message of Aleister Crowley. And I believe it is thoroughly satanic and is meant to uh, really try to deal a death blow to what faith remains in, in, the, in human souls here on earth. Um, you heard of the, the book, The Chariots of the Gods, and so many other writings that have, over the years, the, the decades, been coming to talk about all these tremendous mysteries. And there are some very mysterious things. I understand that. I also realize that they can be demonic in origin. And they can have a demonic explanation. Or even a non-preternatural ordinate, uh, just the inter interpretation of these things. Uh, on our part, is skewed, wrong, uh, maybe self-serving, to try to push a certain point of view. Uh, but I, I just want to, people to be very careful about falling into this trap of believing in the space alien thing, to, uh, because, as I say, I believe the globalists will use this, they, they will use anything they can get their, their, their mitts on, in order to push their agenda, and their, uh, their agenda is to destroy faith and to um, gain global control over the entire human race digitally. Uh, they want to create a digital prison prison for everyone in the world, except themselves, of course. So, uh, and the reason why, and the reason why they, they think they can succeed, sad to say, Tom, is because uh, they actually hate God. They hate God's creation as God created it. They hate it. Uh, like, like the devil himself, like Satan himself. They have actually the mind of Satan. They hate God. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate his saints. And the saddest part of all, as we read about in the Gospel of last Sunday, they hate God more than you and I love him. That's the saddest part of all. They hate God and they hate our Lord more than we, the faithful, love God and more than we love our Lord. And that's the most tragic thing of all. Remember the gospel of last Sunday? It was just a couple of days ago, right? The unjust steward, right? Fired for wasting his master's goods, right? He starts plotting, what can I do to, you know, save myself? And he gets everybody involved, all his master's debtors, and it stresses, Every one of his master's debtors he calls in, gets him involved in a criminal enterprise to defraud his master, all for his own personal benefit. And our Lord's judgment of this, the gospel is not trying to teach us sound business practices. The gospel is to tell us about who we are. And it's actually a lamentation from our Lord. His words, the children of this generation, the children who live for this world are wiser or more prudent or more shrewd. Perhaps the word shrewd is a better word there. In their generation, according to worldly materialistic things, than are the children of light, than the children of light. And our Lord is referring to children of light as those who have faith in him. Uh, that they are more shrewd and more dedicated to lose their souls than we are to save ours. That they are more dedicated to the damnation of souls, their own and others, than we are dedicated to the salvation of our souls and the souls of others too. And it really comes down to, it's all about a love. It's a matter of love. The fact is that they, they love, they love in such a way that they have rejected the love of God and they actually have a certain contempt and hatred for the love of God. And they have a greater contempt and hatred for the love of God than you and I have appreciation for it and love for God ourselves. And that has to change. We have to change that. And, uh, you know, when, when St. Louis de Montfort talks about the saints of the last days, he says they will be the greatest saints. He said they will make the martyrs of the early centuries look like just shrubs compared to the cedars of Lebanon, 
the saints of the last times. And it will be because their love for God will be so perfect, will be so strong, it will have to be to survive. That's the love for God that is going to be necessary in those days. Well, that's the kind of love for God that you and I should aspire to. That's the kind of love for God that you and I should want every day of our lives. We should pray for every day of our lives, right? That's the kind of love for God that you should want to inspire in your children every day. So, anyway, yes, I did have a few last words, <laughs> uh, and uh, there they are. Well, thank you, Father. Thanks for another great episode. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Yep. Okay. So, God willing, we will. Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.